Smith. Let's give the Lord a hand again. It's great to be with you, Influence family, and I want you to know how much I respect your pastor, Tim Hudson Pillars, and his wife, Lisa, and let, join me in thanking the Lord. Did I, did I say that wrong? Tim, Tim. Phil. I, the, the, the song and the praise and worship threw me off track. I was just caught up in the presence of the Lord. Phil Hotson Pillar and Tammy Hotson Pillar. Thank you. All right, what a way to start off. But um, I don't think, and, and Floyd is a great friend. I'm going to jump into a presentation. And uh, again, the most common form of government in world history is kings. Pharaoh, Caesar, Kaiser, Sultan, Tsar. As the centuries go on, the kingdoms get bigger because with military advancements, they can kill more people. And with technological advancements, they can track more people. Until, um, and so um, when you look at the history, what the king believed, the kingdom had to believe. Remember Nebuchadnezzar blowing the trumpets and he had to bow. And so you got Henry VIII killing William Tyndall because he didn't believe the way that he did. And then you have the king of Spain um, sent his army to Antwerp, Holland, and they killed the Iron Duke of Alba in 1572, kills like 10,000 of the Protestants and um, leaves their body in the streets. And then you got um, the Catherine de Medici, the queen of France, and um, about 15% of France is Protestant. And uh, now there were Catholics killing Protestants and there were Protestants killing Catholics and there were Protestants killing Protestants. Lots of killing going on, right? So we're not trying to lay blame, but we're trying to give the, the origin of America. And so Catherine de Medici, queen of France, wants to marry her daughter, Margaret, to the main Protestant leader named Henry Navarre. Big wedding in Paris. A couple of days after the wedding, she has them pull the chains across the streets so the carriages can't go out. And then she has her men go house to house, and they kill 30,000 of the Protestant leaders, throw their body in the Seine River. It's called the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. And um, uh, so you have a problem. What do you do with Romans chapter 13? Right? Um, Let everyone be subject to the governing authority, for there is no authority except that which is established by God, and the authority that exists has been established by God. And so you got people struggling underneath of these leaders, but what if the, the government literally has a mandate to kill your wife and kids and you? You're supposed to say, okay, here they are. And so in the French speaking area of Switzerland, you get a guy named John Calvin. And he begins to write things like, when kings disobey God, they automatically abdicate their worldly power. Uh, another thing, he said, we are subject to the men who rule over us, but subject only in the Lord. If they command anything against him, let us not pay the least regard to it. It's this, yes, it's this idea of children obey your parents. But what if there is a parent that tells the kid to sell themselves into prostitution and kill the neighbor? Is the kid supposed to obey? No, the, the child obeys the parent as long as the parent's telling him to do something that lines up with God's word. So we obey the government as long as the government's telling us to do something that lines up with God's word. I mean, why would God say, obey something that makes you do something that's against my word? And so it's very similar to Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from the Birmingham jail, 1963. He says, one may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and, and uh, obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. One has not only a legal, but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. He goes on, how does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that, that squares with the moral law or the law of God. So you obey the government as long as the government is telling you to do something that lines up with God's word. 
And so these Calvinists began to study how to have a government without a king. And uh, they looked to the Bible, what part of the Bible, that first 400 years out of Egypt before King Saul. So around 1400 BC, Israel comes out of Egypt, and for 400 years, no king. It's called the Hebrew Republic. It's a total anomaly in world history that you don't appreciate until you've gone through and studied all the other pharaohs and Caesars and Kaisers and Sultans. It's a real unusual point. And so this period, this first 400 years called the Hebrew Republic was studied by these Calvinists so much that they were nicknamed Christian Hebraists. And that's why they taught Hebrew at Yale and Harvard. And so King Saul is the dividing point between England and America. The kings of England looked to the Bible as their authority, but they looked to the anointed King Saul and on period. The Calvinist Puritan founders of New England looked to the Bible for their authority, but they looked to the pre-King Saul period, which was the original plan that God gave. And so you look at around 1400 BC, Israel comes out of Egypt for 400 years, no king. And the, every single person is taught the law and every person is, is accountable to God to follow the law. And so you have a law in society with no king because everybody's taught the law. So you, you think of a spectrum, a line. All governments are somewhere on this line. One side's total government, the other side's no government. Everybody hold up a fist in one hand and say concentrated power, concentrated power. Fingers apart, the other hand say separated power, separated power. Now back to the fist, concentrated That's world history. For most of world history, power is in the hands of the kings, pharaohs, Caesars, Kaisers, Sultans, Tsars, El Presidentes, Chairman, Maos, right? And it's very rare for people to rule themselves without a king. But if you just take away the law, it's gonna be chaos. It's gonna be anarchy unless each person is taught the law. I was thinking of a way of explaining it. It's like um, we all have iPhones with GPS. Imagine if you could download a behavioral app, <laughs> right? And it would monitor your blood pressure and your voice volume, and it sees you're about to lose your temper. It says, alert, don't lose your temper. And then it's monitoring your bank account, sees it's a little low, and geoposition sees you in a, you're in a store with expensive stuff, nobody's in the vicinity, runs this algorithm, you're being tempted to steal. Alert, don't steal. And then the Levites are the computer geeks that help you to download the app, right? And so everybody in Israel downloaded this app called The Law. And, uh, but the big question is, why would you follow it? What would motivate you to follow an internal moral? Israel had the key ingredient. There is a God who is watching everyone. He wants you to be fair, and he's going to hold you accountable in the future. You're about to steal. Nobody's around. You know you can get away with it. And then you think, uh, God's watching me. He wants me to be fair. He's going to hold me accountable. Maybe I should hesitate stealing. So it creates something in your head called the conscience. Now, God knew the Israelites would sin. And rather than them walk around the rest of their life anticipating judgment, once a year they had the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. They sacrificed and they brought the blood into the Holy Holy, sprinkled it on the mercy seat. And everyone's sins in the nation were forgiven for the past year. They all started the new year off with a clean slate. And obviously, that is foreshadowing Jesus. He's our atonement, and we're forgiven not just for the past year, but for the past life and for all of our life and for all of eternity. Can you say amen? And, um, and so now it's not just taking the power of the king, giving it to the people, and giving the people the law. It's people in covenant with each other. And so this is what was taught by these Calvinist Puritans. So you get rights from God, you're fair to your neighbor because you're doing it as unto God, and this God is not a respecter of persons. You get blessings from God, you share them with your neighbor because you're doing it as unto the Lord. 
Whatever you do, the least is my... It's a way that you can provide for the needs without a king, without a government mandate. And so Jesus says, upon this rock, I'll build my church. In Greek, the word church is ekklesia. Ek is Greek. It means out of. Ecclesia means a calling. 6,000 citizens of Athens, they'd call them out of their homes to the marketplace, and they'd decide what they need to do, right? We've got to fix the walls and teach the kids. And, and so um, this was the style of government that these Calvinist Puritans did. It's a way to have a government without a king. And um, uh, so the king didn't like that. He liked the clergy lady model. Clergy does all the ministry and the ladies lazy and watches, right? But the congregational model is the pastor teaches each person to have their relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ that died on the cross to pay for their sins. And then the pastor coaches each person to be a mature Christian, get in the habit of reading the Bible every day and praying every day and then plugging into the body and doing something. Nursery, children's church, junior high, outreach, right? Because anything that's alive takes in and gives out. For any muscle to grow, it has to be exercised. For you to grow as a Christian, you don't just hear a message online. You gotta put yourself in a position where there's somebody with a need. And then the Holy Spirit uses you to meet the need, right? We've all been there. You're, you're talking to teaching or witnessing to somebody and you find yourself saying these really smart things. And you're like, gee, I didn't know I was so smart. You're not, it's the Holy Spirit <laughs> giving you inspiration, right? And then you meet somebody's need financially and you feel this joy on the inside because that's the Holy Spirit, right? And so it's a congregational model. Uh, that's why I hated the COVID response so much because it was changing church government, right? You can, you can hear a really great message online, but what are you gonna do, witness to your pillow? <laughs> no, you need to put yourself in a position where you could water seeks its own level. Somebody fill with the Holy Ghost around somebody with a need and the Lord's gonna use you. And uh, the king didn't like that. So you had these Baptists that were starting congregational churches and um, uh, they would get put in the Newgate prison. One was a guy named John Merton. They didn't feed you in the Newgate prison. And uh, his friend brought him a bottle of milk, but instead of a cork, it had a wad of paper. And when the guard wasn't around, he unfolds the paper, takes a splinter, dips it in the milk, writes out his pamphlets. It, it dries, it's clear, folds it up, puts it in the empty bottle. His friend takes it home and unfolds the paper and holds it above a candle. And the heat of the candle turned the milk brown. They could read what he wrote. They typeset it and print the pamphlets. And the government's like, how's he getting this out of the prison cell? And so the early Baptist called it the milk of the word because he was writing it in milk. And one of the things he wrote was, no man ought to be persecuted for his religion. And then another Baptist that dies in the Newgate prison is Thomas Hellwise. He says, the king is a mortal man and not God. Therefore, he hath no power over the mortal soul of his subjects to make laws and ordinances for them to set spiritual lords over them. For men's religion to God is betwixt God and themselves. The king shall not answer for it, neither be the king be judged between God and men. And so it's like, we don't want the government telling us what to do. So King James says, I will make them conform or I will harry them out of the land. And so that's when you have these pilgrims fleeing from England to Holland and after 12 years fleeing from Holland to America. They were gonna go to Jamestown, submit to the king's government there. They get blown off course, land in Massachusetts, and uh, they try sailing south, uh, but off the coast of Cape Cod, it's really shallow, and you have um, 3,000 ships have sunk. And so they go back to Cape Cod. The captain says, everyone off the boat. And these pilgrims say, well, we have a question. Who's gonna be in charge? There's no king-appointed person in our little boat. The whole world's ruled by kings, and, uh, and there's just us. What are we gonna do? They do something unique they give themselves the authority to start a government. It's called the Mayflower Compact. We, in the presence of God, covenant ourselves together into a civil body politic. You have a church group covenanting itself into a political group. 
Let me say that again. A church group covenanting itself into a political group. Why? To enact just and equal laws that shall be thought most meet or necessary unto which we promise all due submission. Revolutionary. It was a polarity change in the flow of power on planet Earth. Instead of top-down rule by kings, it's bottom-up rule by we. Just us in this little boat, we're covenanting ourselves together. And um, so it's the difference between a dead pyramid where kings rule through fear or a living tree where every root and every tiny capillary root sucks in nutrients. We need everybody to participate to make this thing live. And um, uh, so you have uh, uh, kings have subjects, but democracies have citizens. The word citizen is Greek. It means co-king. You're a citizen of America. You are a co-king of America. And where did they get this idea? Their pastor, John Robinson, not an Anglican king-appointed pastor, one of these congregationalist kind. And, um, uh, and so this covenant form of government, uh, pilgrim pastor John Robinson, we are knit together as a body in covenant of the Lord, tied to care for each other's good. Uh, Puritan founder John Winthrop, uh, this love among Christians is a real thing, not imaginary. He said, we are fellow members of Christ. We ought to account ourselves knit together by this bond of love. We must make one another's condition our own. Rejoice together, uh, mourn together, labor, suffer together. We shall find the God of Israel is among us. And so this is unique, um, and this covenant form of government, and you have pastors and their churches founding communities. And so at a time when you have kings and pharaohs and sultans, here's unique, a little greenhouse in America. And you got uh, one pastor named uh, Thomas Hooker. And he and his church found Providence, excuse me, Hartford, Connecticut. And his church members say, Pastor, could you do a sermon on how we're supposed to set up government? And he gives a sermon in 1638 titled, The Foundation of Authority is Laid in the Free Consent of the People. This is reflected in our declaration, government from the consent of the governed. And this is different from Europe because the kings of Europe could care less about your consent. You're going to do what I tell you to do because I got an army and... His sermon goes on, the privilege of election belongs to the people. This is reflected in our Constitution, we the people. And uh, Calvin Coolidge says, Thomas Hooker of Connecticut, as early as 1638, said in his sermon that the foundation of authority is laid in the free consent of the people. And then you have uh, uh, his sermons turned into the, the Constitution of Connecticut. It's called the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut. They use his sermon from 1639 up until 1818 as the, as the charter, as the constitution for the state. That's why they call it the constitution state. And um, so uh, here's a plaque in England, Thomas Hooker, founder of the state of Connecticut, father of American democracy. Another plaque in England, Thomas Hooker, um, reputed father of American democracy, a statue of Thomas Hooker holding a Bible at the base of the statue as leading his people through the wilderness. On this site, he preached the sermon, which inspired the fundamental orders. It was the first written constitution that created a government. Another plaque, it says, here preached Thomas Hooker, his famous sermon, the foundation of authorities laid in the free consent of the people, and then the representatives of the people adopted as the fundamental orders. Um, what do they say? The people can join ourselves to be as one public state or commonwealth. Who are the people? The church members. And they're conjoining themselves into a public state. Again, you have a church group forming itself into a political group. Why? To preserve the gospel uh, of our Lord Jesus. And uh, here's another plaque. It says, Thomas Hooker's congregation established a form of government upon which the present Constitution of the United States is modeled. Do you grasp this? His church government, everybody's involved, becomes a community government, everybody's involved, becomes our Constitution. We the people. America started as a church plant. <laughs> and um, here, here's another plaque. It says... Um, 
Thomas Hooker, a leader, preacher, statesman who based all civil authority on the, what, free consent of the people. This was such a big deal on planet Earth, 6,000 years of history, and here you have people ruling themselves without a king. They chiseled it in stone so he wouldn't forget it. Here's another plaque. It says, Thomas Hooker, a peerless leader in New England thought and life in both church and state. Now, if you look a little bit closer, you can see it's uh, uh, Phil Hotzenpiller. <laughs> A peerless leader in both church and state, right? <laughs> so in New England, instead of separation of church and state, it was the pastors and their churches that created the state. How could you say pastors don't preach on politics when it's his sermon that's their constitution? How could you say church members don't get involved in politics when all there was in Hartford was the church members? There were like no non-church members to be lazy and let them take over. Anyway, I don't have time to get into it, but in the 1700s, you had the Lutheran pietists come over, and they would say it's more than a plan. You have to have an experience with Jesus. And when you do, your life will change, and you won't do the worldly things you used to do, like go to bars and brothels and get involved in lewd theater and, and then in government. So we have um, this second group uh, called the Pietists, and their idea is don't get involved in government because government's worldly. And so this turned into the German concept of the two kingdoms, the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of the church, the two don't touch. And um, four centuries of that allowed uh, Hitler to seize power and... Uh, put Jews on train cars, and they're going past the churches crying out for help, and the church is responsible. Well, that's the government doing that, and we're the church, and we can't do what the government So let's just sing praise songs to Jesus louder. It's like, can anybody see something wrong with that picture? Right? And, and so it's actually, there's a, a middle, I don't know where the time went. It's just the clock goes by too fast. Anyways, now these... They did have revivals, and it did turn into the First Great Awakening or revival. So the, it, it is a personal experience with Jesus, and... Um, Anyway, uh, so it can be both, okay? So here's the both. It is a personal experience with Jesus, but we want to be involved in government so our kids can have a personal experience with Jesus. Because if you don't get involved, they're going to teach stuff in schools that'll undermine the entire gospel. They're going to forbid the gospel, right? And so the um, most important thing is to bring people to Christ. The second most important thing is to preserve the freedom to do the most important thing. If you really believe the gospel is the answer, you're going to be involved wanting to preserve the freedom to preach the gospel. Does that make sense? And, uh, and then what about the people? And then I put American faith in there because that's what it's doing, right? It's doing both. Like the, we want to uh, have people experience Christ, but we want to preserve the freedom so that they have the chance to hear the gospel. And um, now, is it holier to be silent? We all meet people. Oh, I just preach the gospel, brother. We're not involved in worldly things, you know, and we're just pure gospel. It's like, is it, is it holier to be silent? Well, uh, Numbers chapter 30 um, has a little person there, part of this says, if a daughter still living in her father's house and binds herself with a vow, and the day the father hears of it, if he's silent, her vows stand. But if the father disallows the vow, she's released. The Lord forgives her. And so that's come down to us as vows in a wedding ceremony. And the pastor says, anybody that's against this wedding, speak now or forever hold your peace. If you're at the wedding and you're silent, your silence is giving consent to the wedding. Well, if a church member's silence gives consent to wedding vows, their silence gives consent to other things. And if they're killing kids and you're silent, you're giving consent to killing kids. And so uh, Leviticus 20, any Israelite or foreigner residing in Israel who sacrifices any of his children to Moloch is to be put to death. If the members of the community close their eyes when that man sacrifices one of his children to Moloch, I myself will set my face against him and his family and will cut them off from their people together. All you have to do is close your eyes when he does it and you're guilty. And... Um, so you look at the scriptures, the apostle Paul, 
He didn't throw a stone at Stephen. He didn't even say anything. He was just silent, but he knew he was guilty for the death. He says, uh, and when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I was standing by consenting to it. Just by his silence, he knew he was guilty. And so um, the... Uh, Moses didn't. Moses and Aaron were called to the door of the tabernacle. The Lord says, "Moses, gather the assembly. Take the rod. Hit the rock, or speak to the rock. Water will come out." He gathers the assembly, hits the rock once, hits it twice. Water comes out. End of the chapter. It says, uh, "Aaron will not go into the promised land because both of you rebelled at the waters of Meribah." It's like both. Uh, Aaron didn't do anything. He didn't say anything. Yeah, that's just it. He was at the door of the tabernacle. He heard God tell Moses, speak to the rock. When Moses lifted up the rod, hit the rock the first time, that was Moses' sin, probably took Aaron by surprise. When Moses lifted up the rod the second time, Aaron knew what was coming, and he was silent. And in that instant, he was guilty. And so we all know this verse, Leviticus 8, 19, 18, love your neighbor as yourself. You know the verse right before it, it says... Confront your neighbor directly so you will not be held guilty for their sin. That's a little bit uncomfortable, isn't it? Another translation, rebuke your neighbor directly so you will not incur guilt because of him. Modern translation, it's wrong not to correct somebody who needs correcting. <laughs> right? So if there's something going on, you're silent, you're, you're guilty for it. And, um, and there's even... Uh, a verse that can, convicts me, Leviticus 5.1, it says, if somebody takes God's name in vain in front of you and you're silent, it's the same as you taking God's name in vain. Wow. We need to do something to say, hey, I'm not in agreement with that. And so you had um, uh, Martin Luther King, he who passively accepts evil is as much involved in it as he who helps to perpetuate it. He who accepts evil without protesting it is really cooperating with it. And um, so uh, there's more there. But if you drive by a school and you know they're teaching something in the school that Jesus would never teach. Jesus, these little kids made in God's image. And Jesus taught them, he who made them at the beginning made them male and female. Yet they're trying to guilt trip you and say, if you're really Christian, you'll tolerate them teaching something to the kids that Jesus would never teach. So if you're really Christian, you won't act like Christ. And yet Jesus said... Um, if you, uh, and there's been a 900% increase in trans-identifying kids in the last two years, 900%. They do the pyramid of oppression, and the top is the cisgendered. I had to look up what that was. They, they say, you're cisgendered if you believe there is a man and a woman. And they go into the classroom and says that if you believe that there's a man and a woman, you're the, cis, you're the oppressors on the pyramid. You're the bad kids. And no, none of the kids want to be the bad kids, so they say, oh, I'll, I'll pick one of these others. Oh, I'm bisexual, I'm intersexual, I'm a, right? 900% increase in just the last two years. And uh, it, Jesus says, if you stand by and give your consent by your silence, if you cause one of these little ones who trusted me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone around your neck. So um, it's going to be a rude awakening for those who think they are holy by not getting involved when they realize by their silence they're giving consent to sin. They're inviting the judgment of God on their heads. So did I encourage you today? And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, you know, we're the bride of Christ, and every romance novel builds up to a decision-making moment, a forsaking of all others and choosing the one. I believe God is pushing the world to a decision-making moment. And some people are going to choose the all others. Oh, I want to be liked and friended and followed, and I don't want somebody to post something bad about me on the Internet. And, and others are going to say, I don't care about the all others. All I care about is the one, Jesus. 
But the world is, and so I think God is letting the evil come out of the closet so you can see it for its bald face evil, right? Satan worshiping Grammys and, you know, Disney Antichrist cartoons. And, um, and then there's going to be those that are silent in the face of that. And by their silence, they're giving consent to it. And there's going to be other people that say, you know what? I, I tolerated something I didn't feel good about. Um, and then I stretched the rubber band and I tolerated something else I didn't feel good about. Uh, but you know what? I, I, I just can't go with hysterectomies on eight-year-old girls. I, I'm sorry. I just can't go there. And you cut the rubber band. You say, since I don't care about what people think, I'm going to be more excited for Jesus than ever before. There's a splitting. There's a dividing that's taking place. And I believe God's pushing us to this point. Now, in, uh, in closing, we're talking about uh, thousands of years of history. We're given the chance to get involved. But let's look at the big picture. Why did God make us in the first place? You know, the... Uh, Hubble telescope in 2003 was focused on a spot in the sky where there was nothing. The spot was so small, the size of a grain of sand held at arm's length against the night sky, nothing there. And after 11 days, they developed the images. In that spot was 10,000 galaxies with hundreds of billions of stars in each galaxy. This is the picture. It's not an artist's rendition. This is the furthest picture ever taken away from planet Earth. It's called the Hubble Ultra Deep Space Field. Every dot you see is a galaxy with hundreds of billions of stars, all within that little size of a grain of sand. And then they saw that light travels in waves with blue being the, the fastest and red being the slowest. So they saw the red shift, which means that you're seeing these galaxies go away from us. They now estimate the observable universe is 93 billion light years across and still expanding at the speed of light. And the largest star they found is Stevenson 2-18. It's a super gas giant. It is so large, if you were to place it in our solar system, it would engulf the orbit of Saturn, the sixth planet from the sun. We're the third planet from the sun. Could you imagine one single star that enormous? And God made it all, and he made you. Why would he make you? What could you offer a being that is that powerful? Nothing, except maybe something. What's a galaxy anyway? It's a bunch of rocks. Hot rocks, cold rocks, vaporized rocks, molten A rock cannot love you. So at some time in eternity past, God said, you know, been there, done that, I can make everything. I would really like someone in my image that could love me. Now it gets interesting, because love by definition must be voluntary. The moment it's forced, it evaporates, right? If God were to force you to love him in any way, he himself would know he's forcing you to love him and he would know your response is not a love response. So in, in this context of everything he created, time, matter, space, energy, he created one little thing. He does not control your will. Now he could control it if he wanted to, but that would defeat the very reason he made us different than everything else. And he doesn't need your love. He's not incomplete and your love somehow completes him. He doesn't need your love, but he wants it. Parents don't need the love of their children, but they want it. And the more you love someone, the more you want that someone to love you back. God loves you infinitely. He has an infinite desire for you to love him back, but he'll never force you. Because the moment he forces you, it's no longer love. And there's a second thing. You know, I looked at the word angel in the Bible. It appears in the King James 289 times. Never once does it say the angels love God. They worship him, they glorify him, they smite his enemies, they deliver his messages, they're heavenly witnesses. 
But the word love is not used in any verse in the Bible to describe an angel's relationship with God. They're not made in God's image, and Jesus did not die on the cross for angels. Angels cannot forgive. And um, they are immensely powerful, and they're immensely brilliant, but they were made for a purpose. What purpose were you made for? We're not very smart, we're not very powerful. You look up the word love, it appears all throughout the Bible when it describes men and women's relationship with God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Psalms 91, because he said his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. Jesus rises from the dead, says, Peter, do you love me? We are beings created with the ability to love God. But love by definition must be voluntary, so he'll never force us. And um, people say, if God's real, why doesn't he show himself? Because the moment he shows himself, in all of his universe creating omnipotent power brighter than a trillion, trillion suns, your response, if you didn't melt, would be like the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, I fell at his feet, is dead. It would be instantaneous and involuntary. In the presence of all power, boom, you're gonna be flat. And God's like, I can do involuntary all eternity long. I'm interested in this voluntary thing. So he has to hide himself behind his creation. And um, I was trying to think of a way of explaining it. Imagine a billionaire has a son who goes to college and he flies in on his private jet, drives up in his Lamborghini, he's got gold rings, fancy clothes, Rolex watch. He's gonna have every girl on campus wanting to meet him. But if he lays all that aside and drives up in an old clunker, He's got holes in his jeans. The uppity girls are gonna ignore him. But then there's a girl that likes to study with him in the library and they eat together in the cafeteria and they become friends. And uh, she takes heat from the clique for hanging around this nobody guy. But she believes in him. They fall in love, they get engaged. And then one day he says, hey, I, I wanna take you back to meet my dad. And they're like driving up to this castle mansion and the girl's like, whoa, you didn't tell me about all this. He knows that she loves him for him, not because of all of his stuff. The God of the universe, Jesus came to earth, born in a manger. It says in Isaiah 53 of the Messiah, there's nothing in his countenance that would make us want to desire him. He only wants those that love him for him. And, uh, and God created time, right? The, the Bible says that, um, when God created light, light travels at 186,000 miles per second. Einstein's theory of relativity is the closer you can travel approaching the speed of light, for you time slows down. And if you could travel the speed of light, for you time would stand still. God created light, he's faster than light, so for God, time effectively stands still. We'll never comprehend it, but there is a verse in the Bible that says the day with the Lord is as a thousand years in a thousand years. Imagine experiencing one day as if it was a thousand years. In other words, we're, we're living in ultra slow motion compared to God. God exists in the ever-present now. I am that I am. In his presence, there is no past, there's no future. You're in the presence of all power, all wisdom, all love. All you think, and you don't even think, you just experience it, right? So for us, for God to create our reality, he had to create a space-time bubble where everything moves in slow motion compared to now, compared to all at once, right? And so, why is that important? Because we get to make our little free will decisions, but he can readjust every atom in the universe 
before time goes to the next frame so that his will is gonna take place. So it's our free will in the context of his sovereign will. And he's outside of time so he can readjust it. So his will is gonna take place, but we get to have our little free will. But there's a third thing. If God created us as beings with the ability to love God, he hides himself so that we have the opportunity to exercise our free will and love God. The third thing is he's just and he can't help it, which means he has to judge every sin. If God does not judge a sin, by default, he would be giving consent to the sin, like in the wedding ceremony. If he's silent, he's giving consent to the sin, and if God gives consent to one sin, one time, he denies himself. He denies his just nature. He, he ungods himself, he's kicked out of heaven, and he is not gonna get kicked out of heaven, and he is not gonna deny himself, and he is gonna judge every sin. So he could never be loved back. He loves everything he created, but who, could, could his creation love him back? Right, all, all the animals, they just follow instinct. I mean, the little puppies, as cute as they are, they're just following instinct, everything follows. But we have a choice, we have a free will. And so, um, so he makes us his free will, but he hides himself, but he's still just, which means he has to judge every sin. So he came up with a plan. And the, and the plan is God the Father would have his son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten son of God, in the plan of redemption that was hidden from ages. It was a hidden plan. It says, if the princes of this world had known, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. Apostle Paul calls it the mystery of the gospel. In this hidden plan, Jesus, the Son of God, came down, became man, and only as a man could God die. Charles Wesley wrote in his hymn, Amazing love, how could it be that thou, my God, should die for me? It says in Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to crush him. So God is completely just in that he judges every sin, but he's completely loving that he provided the lamb, his own son, to take the judgment for the sin. Abraham and Isaac are going to the top of Mount Moriah. Isaac says, Father, we have the wood for the sacrifice. We have the coals for the sacrifice. But where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, son, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And that's what happened. Jesus, the son of God, became man and took the judgment that we deserve upon himself. So God is completely just in that he judges every sin, he's completely loved, and that he provided the lamb to take the judgment. You know, it says a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. Jesus experienced that day on the cross as if it was a thousand years. That's why he was sweating drops of blood. You read the book of Revelation, one thing seems clear, it's sort of confusing, I haven't figured it out, but one thing seems clear, it's God that's pouring out the vials of judgment in the book of Revelation, right? Lamb breaks the seal, angel throws the censer, angel blows the trumpet. It's like, why is that? It's the, God's a just God. He has to judge every sin he missed along the way. So you can't get 10,000 years into eternity and say, God, there were these sins way back when and there was one of you didn't judge, you were silent. Were you giving consent to that sin? Is there a party that's, that's unjust we didn't know about? Uh-uh, it says the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever, and the angels cry out, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. Nobody's gonna question for the rest of eternity that God judged sin. But that's the final judgment. He won't have to do any more judging for the rest of eternity. But in that sense, Jesus had the book of Revelation judgment poured out on his head. He took the judgment for every sin that everybody would ever do upon himself on the cross, experience it as if it was a thousand years. 
you know, I, was, I have a degree in accounting, so I like things that balance. You take an eternal being, Jesus, who's innocent, suffering for a finite, limited period of time, it's equal to all of us finite, limited beings who are guilty, suffering for an eternal period of time. Let me say that again. An eternal being who's innocent, suffering for a finite period of time, is equal to all of us finite beings who are guilty, suffering for an eternal period of time. Infinity times finite equals finite times infinity. An unlimited being suffering for a limited period of time is equal to all of us limited beings suffering for an unlimited period of time. Jesus literally suffered the equivalent of eternal damnation in all of our places. He's the only one who could have done it. And out of love for the Father and out of love for you and me, he became the Lamb, took the wrath of God, took the judgment, and then rose from the dead to prove he was who he said he was. This way, amen. This way you and I can approach this universe-creating, omnipotent, omniscient, all-powerful, and all-just God without having to worry about being judged. Because all the judgment we deserve went on Jesus. The Lamb is God's plan to love you without having to judge you. It's his plan, he came up with it. He's a just God. This way he can love you and you can love him back and enjoy him for all eternity without having to worry about being judged because all the judgment you deserve went on Jesus. And then he fills you with his Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And then the Holy Spirit does the good works through you. So instead of you doing good works, hoping to earn brownie points with God, like Cain piling all of his good works on the altar, you're already accepted by God by faith in the blood of the Lamb. And then the Holy Spirit does the good works through you. Loving the unlovable, clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, rescuing those who are unjustly sentenced to death, getting involved and being the salt of the earth to preserve a country where your kids can have the opportunity to worship God. This is your chance. Uh, the God of the universe created you, redeemed you, filled you with his Holy Spirit. This is your chance to do those great things. So today, if you've not yet put all your faith in the Lamb, just close your eyes with me. There's somebody in here. And just say under your voice, Heavenly Father, I thank you for creating me and I thank you for redeeming me. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Jesus, I thank you that you left heaven and you became the lamb and you took the judgment I deserve and then you rose from the dead. I believe in you, come in my heart, fill me with your Holy Spirit, amen.